Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning to PIs Declassified. I'm back after attending a very successful conference last week sponsored by the California Association of Licensed Investigators in Reno. So it was good to catch up with old friends and meet new ones. And although I could not attend, I heard that the National Association of Licensed Investigators Conference in Alexandria, Virginia was outstanding as well. Well, today I'm delighted to introduce a guest on a subject that PIs Declassified has never touched on before, and that is the subject of the use of mailboxes, private mailboxes. My guest, I'm delighted to introduce Andrew uh, Rich. Andrew, are you there? Yes, I am. How are you? Good. Thanks for being on the show today. Uh, glad to join you. Now, uh, you were a postal inspector, a U.S. postal inspector, for 25 years. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the things that apply and don't apply to mailboxes. But tell us how you become a postal inspector to begin with. How does, what is that process? Well, uh, I started out as a, a police officer for five years in Reading, Pennsylvania, and uh, wanted to try um, traveling while doing investigations. I just kind of wanted to expand personally, and a friend of mine who actually was a federal prosecutor uh, suggested the Postal Inspection Service, at which time my response to him was clearly one of confusion and and thinking, what the heck is that? And uh, so he invited me to uh, meet some. So actually, I, he invited me to meet a couple of agencies and federal agencies. But when I met with the postal inspectors, I was uh, very happy to hear that uh, they have what's considered case ownership. In other words, if you start an investigation and you need to travel to another state to do interviews, and you do that. You don't parcel it off to an agent that's out there and mm. may not really care about your case. And so that really attracted me at the time, and they had a, a process, on, in the application process that uh, no longer exists, but it did back then, uh, was a grassroots. In other words, you had to go into the Postal Service itself in order to even apply, and you had to put in one year. So I, I did that. And uh, it got vetted. Uh, the process for the vetting was uh, about a year until all the clearances come back. And originally, uh, you know, I'm from England, so they actually uh, did interviews over there, some of the family members really? that they had sent over. So, uh, but once that was uh, uh, cleared off, and then I went to uh, the academy, and I have to say that I, I really enjoyed uh, a great career for 25 years, and I've been retired now for five. Interesting. So, so that year, were you actually working for the post office in some capacity? Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually I was uh, trying to uh, get involved in all different aspects, uh, knowing that uh, if I uh, certainly made the vetting process, which was obviously hopeful of, uh, that uh, I would gain a lot more knowledge of the operations and everything. And obviously, you, you can only gain so much knowledge, but at minimum, 
uh, what you do gain is uh, an understanding of where you have to go to get your answers and to get the answers that you really need. Uh, so that period of time was actually quite beneficial. Uh, but they don't really do that kind of the pro- part of the process now. It's mm-hmm. uh, changed, obviously, in the years. Right, right. Uh, I'm sure much is done online and by mail and that kind of thing instead of going directly. I, I can't imagine sending people over to England today. That would be so expensive to do a background. Yeah, well, for the, yeah, for the background checks, uh, they nobody traveled over. They they requested uh, oh, okay. uh, counterparts, if you will, to to do that part. And you know, with when you're talking to family members, not hopefully, and not a whole lot will say bad things about you, but <laughs> you can never tell, I guess, <laughs> you know, for your family. But uh, yeah, yeah, but it worked out good. Okay, so. I have absolutely no knowledge of what a postal inspector does. So what kinds of things do you get involved in? Well, uh, anything actually that affects the uh, U.S. mail, but uh, and so most people would think about investigations would say, yeah, uh, you know, and yawn right afterwards. But uh, the thing is uh, that there are so many uh, aspects uh, that touch it. So you've got uh, whether it's white powder, obviously the anthrax went through the U.S. mail. Uh, you have mail bombs. You have mm-hmm. child pornography sent through the mail. Uh, you have obviously the mail fraud statute, which is probably the most used statute uh, across the board uh, that involves any kind of scheme uh, that is furthered by the mail. Uh, and uh, obviously, you've got all the theft of mail. Um, uh, there is just so much uh, that you're involved in. And mm-hmm. because of these responsibilities, uh, you're uh, usually a part of a task force for anything else to include uh, terrorism issues, uh, obviously anything that we uh, as an agency uh, could do to further that aspect. Uh, so it's, um, it, it's just, and for me, I was very lucky. I was head of the white collar section for quite a while. And so I had uh, the uh, western half of Pennsylvania, northern half of West Virginia, um, uh, for the mail fraud statute, the white collar cases and alike. And prior to that, I was a supervisor of the Financial Crimes Task Force. Um, and I also did our major crimes. So I, in my time, I've had a couple of homicides that we had of uh, relating to uh, postal cases. One was a witness of mine who was executed point blank with a, uh, a shotgun. Another one was a, uh, we had a mailman that had been shot and, uh, uh, so it's it's been you know it it's been fortunate you know over 25 years you get to do quite a bit it was actually really nice. That's interesting. You know, uh, last week at the conference that I attended, um, the lead investigator that arrested uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, uh, mm-hmm. Max Noel, was speaking, and and that was a, a heavily involved postal inspector case for many years. Right. Were you involved in any of that? I was not involved in that. Uh, that would have been a very, very interesting case to to be a part of, but I, I was not. And obviously, as an inspector, you try to uh, keep up with as much as you can. However, uh, when the investigation is being done, uh, it really is a need to know. And, and if you're on the periphery, you just don't need to know. Right, and so, right. uh the only thing is that uh, at times they would ask for volunteers, but if someone raised their hand before you, they went and you didn't. 
Um, right. So it was, <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, one of those. It was a great agency for that where uh, a lot of inspectors would uh, volunteer to uh, jump in on the cases. Interesting, interesting. So t- uh, tell me what white-collar uh, crime involves when you, in, as it relates to the postal inspector. Well, the, the uh, whole aspect about fraud is uh, misrepresentations, in essence, uh, lies in order to acquire someone's uh, money or property. And mm-hmm. so through that process, uh, you could have somebody that, uh, uh, let's say they're going door to door. And so we have no involvement, no going across the state line, uh, just going through a couple of townships, knocking on doors, and making misrepresentations to people uh, about, uh, let's say, uh, either an investment, home improvements, loans, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But if they've gone around for several months, and then at one point, we have one individual that either... Uh, sent a mail specifically for or just furthered that scheme, those lies, uh, so it doesn't have to be the bad guy, uh, then that mm. whole entirety, that entire scheme can be brought in in a federal court under the mail fraud statute. You only need one mailing uh, to see. actually get it classified as a federal crime. And unlike many of the, I shouldn't say all the states, obviously, but many of the states, they have to literally itemize each individual, um, uh, let's say, attribute of the losses and charge each check or or whatever it is. And in in the mail fraud statute, you're given a lot more latitude. You can basically cite uh, one or two checks if you want or a handful of checks, but you can cite the entirety of the amount of the scheme. It, not just the one mailing, but uh, for everything that went into that scheme. So as long as it was a continued fraud, um, it's all included. Uh, and at that point, uh, the as long as the mailing is within statute, uh, you know, whether it's the five year or ten years, but if it's in statute, uh, then you can basically bring in anything that was done previously uh, even though it wasn't specific to that one mailing, I had an insurance uh, agent who had been defrauding people for 17 years, and wow. uh, through that process, we were we managed to go back and take all the losses and uh, gather in all the 17 years worth of uh, fraud that they had done. And that could happen even if there was just one piece of mail that was sent through. Well, the mail gives the jurisdiction. Uh, so, uh, for instance, with uh, phone calls or with uh, you know anything with a computer where you're talking the wire and you get the wire fraud statute, uh, there's uh, a requirement, of course. That there is a certain exclusion that can help with uh, one aspect of it. But for the most part, what you have is with the wire fraud statute is it has to cross state line. With mm-hmm. the mail fraud statute, it does not. Uh, because you have uh, the issue with a uh, government agency, a quasi-government agency, some would say, with the uh, USPS taking control of a person's uh, papers, private letters, and etc. There is no requirement that it crosses the state line, and so if it goes across, uh, you know, the street or across town, uh, all of a sudden you have an issue where uh, there's federal jurisdiction, and so um, the mail is. Uh, 
is closely guarded. Uh, postal inspectors and the postal IG, which uh, they do fraud, waste, and abuse, and they do primarily employees. Uh, but with uh, with the inspectors, I mean, obviously, that's the front line for trying to protect the males. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at, so what, uh, yeah. at what point, I guess... I guess at one some point the mail becomes the property of the postal uh, service. So once it's picked up, is that then the property of USPS? Yeah, actually, even before that, uh, it can be. So okay, uh, it's not. It, and in a sense, I mean, when you say the property, it's under the authority of okay. the, the obviously the, the postal service doesn't own the letter that's going through the mail. But if you have the collection boxes. Um, person puts it in the collection box. The placing it there is the same as, if you will, or considered the same as giving it to a postal employee to safeguard for delivery to where it's supposed to go. But what a lot of people may not understand is that if you have an office and mm-hmm. the mailman typically walks into that office and places the deliverable mail in one location on that secretary's desk and picks up outgoing mail off of that desk, that it's not just when he actually picks it up that it can be considered under the authority of USPS. Hmm. In fact, when someone places it, simply places it there an hour or two hours before the mailman gets there, even that then can be considered the U.S. mail. Oh, that's, so, that's fascinating. Yeah, so, it's, it's, it gets into a tricky area, but uh, the courts have held that. And so uh, the people that you see, uh, a lot of people will, they don't put it out on their mailbox, but they may attach it to a flap inside their garage with a, with a clothespin. <laughs> Often you see things like that. Would that be the same kind of thing? If if that is where they habitually place it and where the mailman picks it up, then there is consideration, and each case has to have rise on its own merits. But right. it, it could be consideration that as soon as they placed it there, it was placed specifically for U.S. mail. And, and so, it's obviously, uh, it's, yeah, it's obviously it's a it's a letter. It's something that's going to go in the in the uh, in a mailbox somewhere. Right, and part of it has to be, in a sense, just clearly understood that this is what they do. This is what they've done week in, week out. That's how they normally go Mm -hmm. about it, as opposed to the first time and the mailman doesn't know about it and walks right by. Uh, So I know it gets into kind of, well, that sounds a little confusing, but in all honesty, uh, the courts will take each one on its own merit. You have to justify the federal authority on each and every case. Hmm. That must be a little difficult to establish, though, isn't it? It's uh, when obviously when you're you're uh, doing it, you know, you're in, you're out. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot more clarity that comes with each case, and you understand from any previous issues on what it is that you have to cover, and and you don't try and make something federal property if it, in all honesty, it's really not, and and you go by the guidance of the the courts and how they've ruled previously. And it sounds like that um, probably more often than not, the postal inspectors are working with other governmental agencies because there's other, other like the FBI or the Secret Service is involved. 
Yes, we do uh, uh, a lot of work, both agencies, and uh, there's a lot of crossovers uh, for investigative interest. Uh, for instance, Secret Service uh, uh, does a, uh, an awful lot with credit cards and uh, forged checks, forged documents, and the like. And obviously, anything that went through the mail that was like that falls also under the purview of the uh, inspection service. So you you don't fight for authority. What you do is you <laughs> join. You know, it's it's not like yeah. you're sitting on the playground. You know, that's mine. Um, so, and uh, a lot of times also we'll we'll set up task forces so that we just work collaboratively. We we had one here in uh, the Pittsburgh area, Southwest Pennsylvania, and very successful. And we had uh, 17 uh, agents, police officers, and detectives that were assigned to it. It was really in the heyday of a lot of the gang activity with uh, credit cards and the like. Mm-hmm. And so we just uh, collaborated. I mean, at one point, I think we had uh, four or five inspectors, and we had four Secret Service agents, and we had uh, an FBI agent and uh, county police, uh, city police. Uh, so it was it was just great working atmosphere. Interesting. Very interesting, uh, Andrew. Uh, we're going to take a really quick break. Hang in with us, and we'll be right back with Andrew Rich. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. 
Andrew Richards, not Rich. It's Andrew Richards, a former uh, U.S. Postal Inspector and former law enforcement officer um, and present private investigator, is talking to us about the postal inspection uh, process, how that all works and how it, how the task force work. And we were just talking about the task force. When you get assigned to a large task force like you just uh, described, how does that work? Does there is there one head person and then everybody has their assignments or how does that operate? Yeah, actually the uh, the process is uh, interesting. Sometimes you get volunteers and obviously some agencies they'll send who they don't want elsewhere. Uh, that can happen. But that could overall, be a problem. <laughs> you really, yeah, it can be. But, you know, you work through it. But uh, uh, you'll get some investigators that, uh, you know, they, they want to be door kickers and they don't want to do paper crimes. And uh, But uh, in all honesty, uh, they can be uh, uh, a lot of fun. I know some people probably rolling their eyes at that one. But uh, I've, I've, been on a, I've been on a lot of task forces. But with the Financial Crimes Task Force, I, I headed that. And the way that we operated was... Um, Quite simply, that uh, we would uh, take cases that were, if if uh, you know, you're talking about the size of a case or the amount of investigative uh, effort needed uh, in a case, we would take it from other police departments, state police. Sometimes we'd have a federal agency that, for the most part, they did not have enough time or man hours to be out of work because there's a lot of federal agencies that are actually smaller. And so we'd either you know, ask if they wanted to join on the case, or if not, they would give us uh, that case. But ultimately, when you're looking to assign, uh, we would have weekly meetings, uh, bring up the uh, new cases. If an agent brought it in, they had first right to it, uh, that they could control the case. If they were overwhelmed at the time with other matters, uh, then we would look to see if somebody else would be the lead. And usually we would sign at least two uh, uh, agents to it, and then I say agents meaning also in police officers or uh, state troopers or whoever was uh, involved at the time in the task force, and we would prefer to have them from two different agencies in case one got called off on, on specific tasks regarding their agency if there was a, an emergency and they had to leave, so that at least we could keep our cases uh, progressing. Uh, mm-hmm. That was always the biggest factor was to keep cases moving. Um, so even with uh, paper crimes, uh, you know, the, the, you uh, can get into situations where you, you need basically an immediate response. I mean, uh, some of them you've got to treat them in the sense of almost like it's a robbery. You, you need to go. You need to start it now. Uh, with other paper crimes, I mean, you, you could be a little slower on it, but when you get too slow, even with paper crimes, it can start to dissipate as far as your evidence uh, but the process was uh, a good one. We never had anybody upset about what it is that they were uh, asked to do, or, or usually it was more that they volunteered to do. Sure. Well, and it sounds sounds like, I'm just speculating, that this sounds like you uh, um, really need people with analytical skills and uh because you're getting usually getting involved in financial matters and trying to follow a trail a little bit different than maybe investigating a crime scene, for example. Correct. Um, you know, having gone through everything, you know, res- with respect to crime scenes and doing investigations from that standpoint, you're you're absolutely correct. You don't normally have that uh, uh, that kind of concern. 
sometimes it can blend into what you're doing. But uh, so your skills have to uh, be honed to uh, you know a different style of investigation. And in, mm-hmm. in fact, when you're talking about, for instance, with fraud cases, um, it, it's actually uh, worked a little backwards. And uh, uh, people that are uh, or agents that are coming from one kind of crime, investigative crime uh, aspect is normally dealing with they've got a criminal act and they need to find out who's doing it. When you're working fraud, white collar, you know who's doing it. You need to prove that it's a crime. And, you, and there is a different way of actually investigating. So we mm-hmm. sometimes have agents that would come in. It would take them almost a couple of years to adjust to mm-hmm. what it is that we would need to be able to prove the elements, you know, for a, uh, a fraud. And it, it's right. not for everybody. You know, it, it right. is different. I can, I can definitely see that um, for sure. So, so are you still there? I think it feels like yeah. I lost you. Oh, okay. No, I'm here. I just went... It just went silent for a minute and felt like you oh. weren't there anymore. <laughs> you never know with radio, you know. So, yeah. um, okay, so you don't know when you when you put together a task force. You really and you're you're the head honcho on that task force. You don't know what you're getting until you till you get the people assigned to it, do you? Correct. Uh, I mean, sometimes you get volunteers, uh, people that you know. I mean, in, in the law enforcement community, depending upon the size of your city or your area, uh, you know, a lot of guys already know each other. And you sometimes yeah. have guys that will be, uh, I apologize, I should say just agents. And sometimes you'll have agents that uh, they're on a couple of different task forces. I mean, over my time, I think I may have been on about 10 task forces. Hmm. Um but uh, and so you do get to know each other, and uh, there's uh, you can build a camaraderie and guys that you uh, really like to work with. Um, uh, you you know you both you start to I wouldn't say think alike, but you can pick up on each other's uh, uh, investigative leads as you're going. So if one's not there and the other one is, they know the direction you're going in. Uh, but it is uh, a lot nicer if everybody, you know, gets along. And it's very rare that you don't have that kind of uh, 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 aspects to where, you know, you are getting along and you all not only professionally but personally are, are, uh, in essence, getting along. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it it is important when you do an investigation that there be some form of professional relationship there of of where you can uh, do an investigation because, your, uh, one of your bigger issues is going to be uh, your interview skills. And if one is not particularly skilled and the other one is, and it gets into situations sometimes where you can actually uh, uh, take an interview and, and not be all that productive with it. So it, it's better mm-hmm. if uh, people do get to know each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we were very lucky. We had some... Uh, uh, you, you you need to have uh, a few laughs on the way because you're usually uh, dealing with other people's miseries and it can really bring right. you down. And so obviously you have to find levity uh, appropriately. But uh, you got you got to be able to work uh, day in day out because uh, you go back to your family. You can't be moping around and carrying your casework <laughs> with right. you. Right. 
Yeah, for sure. Interesting. So, so um, one of the things that's always a question, uh, Andrew, is the the use of a mailbox and whether whether you can put something in the mailbox or whether you can look at the mail in the mailbox and and all of that. And investigators talk about this all the time uh, when they you know are, go to a door and nobody's home and maybe there's mail in the mailbox. So, what are what are the rules on that? Well, I, I really start out on this. I really want to start out with a big caution because, uh, you know, if, if you're not doing things appropriately, you're going to get into a jam. So, and the uh, other aspect to this is to understand the seriousness of what's called sanctity of the seal with the U.S. mail. So, sanctity of the seal means that under no conditions, anything in the mail, uh, under no conditions may it be opened. The only time that it can be opened is uh, with the application and approval of a search warrant. So, even for a postal inspector, can't open it, can't do that. Uh, There is classification of a certain type of mail where there are an exclusion, but anything else that you're ever looking at with your uh, first-class mail, express mail, anything else that falls under uh, that kind of... uh, general letter-carrying, uh, personal uh, items you cannot open, bank statements, and etc. So there is zero latitude on that aspect. So the, the point that I had addressed uh, in the uh, magazine sub, uh, submission was more so for a legitimate badge-carrying investigator, someone who's got a license, uh, and is out at a location and trying to get an understanding as to whether, in fact, that person is there or not mm-hmm. just physically at the time, but as to whether that's an actual address. Maybe they got a lead, uh, but they don't know. They knocked on the door. So if we have a mail receptacle, and I'll clarify, too, that mail receptacle is not locked, okay, okay. for where the person it's where it's privacy, that if you see, if you look and you see the letters and you can see the name and address, no one's going to come and slap you on the hand. You can't take it. You can't remove it. But uh, if it's you looking at it, there is nothing inappropriate. For instance, let's say that a parcel was delivered and the mailman walked up to the front door and dropped it onto the front step. Now you walk up and you see it there. There is no violation. You haven't done anything. So mm-hmm. with, the, with respect to the mailbox, if it is locked, that person has indicated their level of privacy that they have. And from that, you should not be tampering with the mailbox. The mailbox itself also has a protection. Right. Uh, that's why the newspapers, you know, or, or pizza guys can't throw the flyers into a mailbox. They haven't paid for it. The mailbox is actually under the control of the postal service as opposed to that individual. Um, so that's why the postal service gets a lot of say over the protection of the mailbox. Okay. The items going into it receive that federal um, the federal uh, authority over it. But if it is something where you can see it, there is nothing wrong in looking at that mail to see if it is your person that you're interested in. Maybe it will help you and move on to another address. Removing it, taking it, opening it, 
you are now committing federal crime. You can't do that. Uh, so you, you need to be smart about the way that, you know, that you're approaching it. And the other aspect, too, is that, of course, mail comes under a federal authority, but it can lose its authority. For instance, if, if someone just leaves it in the mail for days and, and never gets it, uh, there is a point where the courts have held previously in the federal courts that, well, listen, at some point, we can't keep saying it's federal. Okay? okay. The Postal Service has done its job. They've dropped it off. Get your mail out of the mailbox. Now, that doesn't mean that come 5 o'clock that day when deliveries are normally done that it no longer carries federal authority. But again, it goes case to case as to whether or not it would have a federal authority or not. But if it doesn't have federal authority, it's going to have local or state. Uh, so it's still under authority. So no one can just, well, it's not federal anymore, so I can just take it. Well, if there's uh, state violations there, then you've got to deal with that. Uh, but with respect to um, the jurisdiction, there are limitations mm-hmm. on it. Okay, so say you've gone to the same house um, three days in a row and the mail is still looks like it's been there the whole time, you should be documenting that information, maybe photographing that the mail's there to show that uh, there has been a pattern. Yeah, I I think that would be uh, prudent. Uh, I think it would be from an investigative step, uh, it would be prudent. The one thing that they would also need to, you know, state is, you know, how they found the condition, you know, with the mailbox, that, you know, it's uh, not being locked, it's open and uh, uh, viewable. And if there's a package that's dropped on the front porch, I mean, you know, and it was someone and you're using it as an investigative step, I mean, I'd take a picture of that. I, I don't see how mm-hmm. anybody would think that would be protected. Uh, it's not. Okay. The, now, from and, and I'll, I'll just throw this one little caveat in, but this is uh, as much for uh, law enforcement who, who usually knows this, but sometimes local police don't know. Once the mail has been taken inside the house, it loses federal authority. So if someone's okay. taken their mail, thrown it on the coffee table, I don't care if it's open or not open, it no longer has that protection of federal authority. Uh, uh, so... You know, you'll you'll get officers who are well. I can't open that. You know, that's federal property. It's it's actually it's not federal property. But all that we'd have to do to to get clarification is contact local postal inspector, and they'd walk them through it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, um, back to what you said about removing mail from the mailbox. Okay, so. I think most of us are experienced with the little black mailboxes with the flap on the top that's usually open with the mail sticking out of it. Right. So, and say you can't see who it's addressed to. Can you pull that out so you can see uh, the name and address on the envelope? I I really got to tell you, I don't see where the investigative harm would be. Uh, I'm uh-huh. not. I'm not of the. Uh, I don't believe the courts would interpret that if if the person is. Uh, not removing it for a personal benefit. If this is an investigative step to see who is there, I, I do not see where the federal crime would be. There is an aspect to, um, you know, with regard to theft of mail matter uh, generally, where it talks at one point about uh, abstraction of mail. And so I believe as long as, you know, there, again, it's a prudent uh, but if if they're trying to remove it and look to through take all it away. the mail, 
I, right. I, well, if they take it away, they're in a jam. Right. Uh, period. Uh, but if if they take it so they can, in essence, I won't say peak, but uh, you know, with respect to pull it up. I mean, we're only talking here about a verification of uh, an address. Uh, nobody mm-hmm. wants to knock on the door of somebody who's got nothing to do with anything. You know, it's a bad address that you got. Uh, right. And so it wouldn't be unreasonable to say, well, okay, do they get mail here? Well, the mailman can't tell you. Mailman shouldn't tell you. He's not oh, really? supposed to tell you. No. Okay. No, he's not. And mailman can get in the jam if he says, oh, yeah, 212 Main Street. Yeah, that's the Joneses. And, the, you know, they get two, you know, all that. He can. He, he acquires that information in the official capacity of his job. In fact, the, the, under the guidelines, they're actually not even allowed to tell the local police about that. Uh, but that's easily, again, addressed with uh, the local police department contacting their uh, postal inspector and going through that process. Interesting. That's, that's very interesting. Um, okay, so well, you mentioned that, that nobody could open that mail. What happens in the postal department if you identify, you know, say there's something, you know, I'm assuming they go through scanners, that you see something in the mail that shouldn't be there. Is the postal department allowed to open it? Well, the the postal service has uh, obviously authority control and with the idea of the safety of the employees. And so we, you know, obviously we we have those instances where we get a mail bomb. Yeah. Uh, and <clears throat> so as as some of these things uh, uh, come to light, uh, as it's uh, going through the process uh, of going through the mail, uh, if there is something suspicious about it, um, then it's set aside. Inspectors are called, and obviously we have the equipment. And for those. If it is an exigent circumstance, whereas it's the sank suspect right. about it in the sense as to what it's leaking, then we can get uh, uh, an emergency uh, search warrant for wow. that uh, to open it and uh, identify it. If uh, we put it through an x-ray machine and you, obviously you see the wires, you see a trigger and a like, then we, uh, inspectors are not, uh, they don't uh, dismantle bombs. You know, I remember seeing a movie with, it's called Postal Inspectors, and at one point they, the guy came up and kicked the package. It's like, I think that would be the last thing I'd ever do Uh-oh. if I thought it was a bomb. Yeah. But uh, So we, we go through that process and then we would call in uh, whichever agency had guys that could handle the bombs. Uh, but uh, there's uh, inspectors that are trained in uh, bomb investigations. It doesn't mean they dismantle bombs. Uh, right. So, yes, so, there is an authority there. Yeah. Okay. Hang on to that thought because I want to come back to it. We need to pay the bills here. We'll be okay. right back. Andrew Richards, we're right. We'll stay tuned. <laughs> The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're back with former Postal Inspector Andrew Richards. And, um... So I was just uh, really amazed, uh, Andrew, when you were talking about that the even the post even the post office has to get a search warrant to open a package unless actually it's an exigent circumstance, of course, which uh, loss of life could be a problem. But um, that that was amazing to me. Yeah, it's, I would it's, think- and actually, uh, postal employee, employees, I'm sorry, uh, don't have the authority. Just so we're clear, it, we're talking postal inspectors. Mm-hmm. Uh, postal inspectors, obviously, being law enforcement, they carry weapons, um, yeah, all those other uh, normal protections of law enforcement. So the postal employees, of which is uh, you know, over 600,000, uh, they have, uh, you know, they do not have that kind of authority. Very interesting, and uh, it was uh, it was just amazing to me that you had to get a search warrant if if there was a problem. Um, so often package, packages will break open, and you were mentioning when we were offline here. Sometimes a lot of people will send try to send drugs to the mail, which obviously is a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we wouldn't recommend it, right? Yeah, <laughs> no, but. But can you identify them in the within the postal department? There are drugs in that package. Well, the for, let's speak first about the the ones that break open, of which okay. they're there. You know, let's let's say they're a little greedy and they want to get as much scent in that uh, mailing as they can. And uh, I mean, they're packages, you know, and uh, they only. Wrap them for the way that they know how to wrap. I guess uh, not even wrapping it like a Christmas gift, but uh, you know they break open. And if if there's something that's uh, yeah, suspicious about it whatsoever, then the postal employees are doing the processing. 
will set it off to the side and contact the inspectors. Now, the inspectors go down, do a preliminary investigation, but if they want to look any further at that, they have to get a search warrant, a federal search warrant. Now, we've done that before, so it's not it's not problematic, but that package will sit there until the warrant is obtained. Um, the other aspect where we talk about mail bombs, I mean, if that if that package is ticking, well, we're not going to wait for a whole lot of paperwork. Uh, right. We're going to get that removed and uh, take it as an exigent circumstance and, uh, you know, make sure that uh, safety comes first. But uh, we, we don't get an awful lot of those. So, you know, it, it, there's a practical matter to it. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And just so people that are sending drugs to the mail, you can identify the drugs when they're going through the system, can't you? Well, there's, uh, there are certain things that, that are available uh, to the inspection service, which I would, I would not disclose. Right, um, for sure. So there are investigative aspects. Uh, all I can say is that, you know, you're mailing your, uh, uh, your marijuana or your Coke, you know, do it at your own risk. Uh, because, uh, uh, yeah, it's much like anything else. I mean, uh, who knows the mail best, but, uh, you know, the uh, Postal Inspection Service, who, who delves okay. into all the aspects of it. And how about guns and ammo? Well, guns are, uh, there are specific things about guns, but it has to be uh, along the line of dealer to dealer or unless there's another exception. There are, there are several exceptions, but not many. But the average person cannot mail a uh, firearm. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not speaking for UPS, but uh, I think that they uh, do some of that. And the same goes for ammunition. You can't do that. I mean, obviously, you've got safety issues with ammunition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something happens to it. Uh, and the weapons, obviously, uh, the government doesn't want to be into the business of moving guns around the country. So there's a lot of restrictions with respect to anything with uh, firearms and anything with uh, uh, you know, explosives. Obviously, we don't want explosives. Right, for sure. Yeah, or any kind of uh, chemicals, contaminants, anything like that. Right. Uh, there are there are other carriers, uh, that, you know, that can do that. So when it comes into the aspect of uh, drugs, or obviously with what we had with uh, anthrax uh, so many years ago, we don't want to repeat of that. And so a lot of a lot of effort was put into a, bit, a huge investment by the Postal Service to uh, ensure that the mails were kept safe. And, and so specific equipment was obtained uh, to try to seek out those kinds of uh, materials. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you know, they, the Postal Service is, is more as much, uh, let's say, as safety-minded as, as what it can be. Uh, and so for those instances where you, you do have something else, uh, then you need to vet it out and see what it is. And uh, obviously, if that you've got to get inside the package and you've got to get a search warrant. Okay. All right. So, um, Andrew, let's go back to... Um, so, because you're, now you're a, a private citizen, you're a private investigator. I know you also are a university adjunct professor, and you're all kinds of subject matter expert and all kinds of other things. But say you're say you're doing an investigation, um, mm-hmm. and you, you're faced with one of these things that we've talked about. So you're going to somebody's house, you're trying to to follow the trail of somebody. Maybe it's a witness. So say it's a witness, you're trying to locate them, and you're going to their house, and there's mail in mailbox. How would you handle it? 
Well, I would, uh, you know, that mailbox is not, uh, doesn't have a lock on it for that added, uh, where the, the person is basically saying, I don't care who you are, uh, this is mine, don't touch it. Uh, so if they've uh, decided to leave it open, I, uh, there is nothing as long as you're not taking it for any other benefit, but if you're identifying the occupant, uh, that you uh, see that. I mean, it's readily apparent. I mean, it's, you know, it's male. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, the name's got to be in the uh, appropriate place for the processing. So mm-hmm. it doesn't take much, in essence, to move it. There's, there's no violation, you know, to moving it. What we get is being in a position sometimes where people will force a box open. They will break a lock off. And you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are protections. So that's why I say move caution. But if it is, uh, you know, where you can you can see the mail, uh, you know, to move it to a point as to where you can see if it's the name that you're looking for as an investigative step and not to take possession of it, uh, then in and of itself, no one's going to come chasing you. So to be clear, you so there's a say there's a stack of letters in the mailbox. It's stuffed full. You could pull them out, go through them, look at them, and put them back in the mailbox, and there would be no violation because you're doing it for an investigative purpose. Yeah, and I I, I would caution as to whether they even need to really pull them out. Uh, so what we're talking here is, I mean, when you're pulling them out, someone might be considering uh, that at that point you're t- trying to take control. Uh, And what I'm saying is, don't take control of the mail. Don't do anything with respect to that. You're looking to see as to whether your individual is at that location and just that supplemental information. So it seemed to be a a misunderstanding of what it is that you could or could not do, whether it's federal or state jurisdictions or how that violation goes. But if the mailbox is open and you just move it sufficiently to take a look to see the name, you could articulate that if you ever needed to, but you would articulate it uh, if you had to do that before a court to say the mailbox was uh, not secured, uh, the mail that was contained within it, and looking at the mail and moving uh, a piece uh, uh, sufficiently to see the name on it verified that so-and-so lives there. So what I'm saying is okay. you've you, you got to move with caution. Uh, and if mm-hmm. you're not mm-hmm. sure, then you better not do it if you're not sure. So. Okay, okay. And, and what about uh, leaving a note for the resident in the mailbox? That would also be prohibited. Well, it's, this is where you get to uh, uh, the position as to whether you're depositing a sink into a mailbox, and as I said before, that is actually controlled by the postal service, and most people don't understand that. Uh, so you've got the homeowner who buys it, but it's under the control of the postal service. So now you're placing mm-hmm. something into it that's under the control of the postal service. Well, you know what? If, if you're just not sure, but you want to leave a copy of that there, stick it into an envelope, put that person's name on it, stick a stamp on it. Uh, I know that sounds weird. Uh, but it, it will, mm-hmm. in a sense, it will avoid issues uh, uh, as far as you depositing sink into a mailbox. Strike mm-hmm. off the stamp with your pen, which actually to all postal employees knows that that stamp has been used and it's voided. It's just not going through okay. the processing. And then take a picture, if you will, of that item as you're placing it in the sense, uh, you know, into the mailbox. And you're covered. Uh, but it, it is, a, I, I know it sounds strange, but... That step of putting a stamp on it to avoid issues 
uh, is uh, beneficial to you, especially if you're an officer of some kind. Uh, this is where, like, pizza shops and are like, you know, they take flyers around, stick them in the mailboxes. Well, you right. can't do that. Uh-huh. Uh, and the reason you can't do that is because it delays the mailman in delivering because he doesn't know if it's an outgoing piece of mail or what it is. And so a lot of that is comes from, uh, you know, those, those concerns as to whether it's economics. He's not moving efficiently and... So, but from from the perspective of an investigator, you want to leave something in the mailbox, stick it in an envelope, put that person's name on it, put a stamp on it, cross it off, take a picture of it, stick it in the mailbox, and you're okay. That is, that is such a great tip. That's really a great, very simple, but a great tip for if you're trying to reach somebody. Because uh, if you know they live there and you can't ever reach them at home, and you want to leave them something, uh, that that is just a really good idea. It's, it's very easy. Um, just you very know, just easy. very easy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. That's uh, very interesting. And when you mentioned the article that you wrote, um, well, I guess you sent a letter. You were telling me you sent a letter uh, regarding an article that was in PI Magazine, and then um, and then. The, resulted in an article that PI Magazine uh, published. And and as everybody knows, PI Magazine is one of our faithful sponsors, Jimmy and Rosemary Mises. So we appreciate them so much. And uh, this is a oh, great yeah, article. Oh, yeah, a great magazine. Uh, yeah, I, re- uh, I read every uh, monthly publication. They have some uh, great articles in there. Do you? Oh, that's good. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, it's, it ma- it's yeah. a very good magazine. It's a very, yeah. uh, it's a great service to the investigation uh, community for sure. Yeah. So, um, any other tips you can give us, Andrew, that uh, uh, in your experience as a postal inspector that you could tell us to do e- either do or not do? Um, well, I, you know, I'll, I'll keep it to uh, you know anything with the postal service, and that is, uh, you know, if if you're just not sure about something and you're trying to get information, just try and keep track of local postal inspectors as opposed to going through a 1-800 number. Uh, so if mm-hmm. you come across a postal inspector, try and get his uh, direct number from law enforcement perspective. Or if you're, if you're doing that kind of thing to, to build up, in a sense, a relationship, I mean, nothing's going to be short-cornered for anybody, but uh, what it is that you're looking for is, is that guidance. So postal inspectors are a pretty friendly bunch. Uh, so, uh, you know, just uh, uh. if you're looking for help on something, and they're good people to call. Oh, that's good. That's good information. You know what? Thank you so much, Andrew, for clearing up an issue that has long been discussed by yeah. private <laughs> investigators. <laughs> and, yeah. of course, oh, thank welcome. you to... Absolutely, and thank you, to, of course, to PI Magazine. If you're interested in advertising on PI's Declassified, you can contact me, at Fran- uh, me Francie, at specialcircumstancespi.com or my... Wonderful producer, Sandra.Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, at voiceamerica.com. So, folks, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. Thank you, Andrew. It's P.I. Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 